listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. Well, Keith, last episode we talked a little bit about hoe tillage and, you know, trying to move to no-till or less till so we can kind of minimize some of that soil disturbance, uh, both for water infiltration, but soil loss as well. And then, of course, we got talking about cover crop and, you know, we could do many episodes on cover crop, but let's try to continue our conversation a little bit. We were talking about establishment. You know, I will say for me, I really prefer fall drilled, you know, after the crop's out, you drill in which cover crop's going to be, you pray for the the warm weather and for it to last as late in the growing season as possible. And then you hope to get warm weather early and that brings it back up. I, you know, I've been around stuff that's flown on. Sometimes it's successful. Sometimes it's not. I've been around a little bit of the, you know, the people will talk about, well, let's let's establish it at, you know, V6 corn by using some kind of intercrop planter. And, you know, that can work if you've got great weed control and don't need something with residual activity later in the season. But if you're putting residual in your post, obviously that doesn't work. You talk a little bit about your experience with establishment, whether it's fall, whether it's flown on, whether it's... I think the first thing we have to kind of debunk here is this idea that the growing season ends when we get our first frost. You know, this last year, for instance, we put in cover crop on the farm well after, I mean, after we had that first frost, we drilled it in, air seeded it in, and it was a full 30 days before we could, you know, before I could identify, it was 28 days before I could identify green on that field. Well, seven days before I saw the first green on that field, it was that really cold snap that we had there in November where we had negative three or four degrees below zero one morning, and we had three or four days where we never got up above 32. The growing season does not end just because we have that first freeze event out of the growing season. We've got a green tint to that field all winter long, with a crop that was planted after after mm-hmm. what we all used to think was the end of our growing season. So the idea of getting it planted into the ground opens up our ability to have success with that because anything that's aerial seeded, anything that's applied to the surface with a spinner or a spreader or an air, air delivery system, however you want to call it that, isn't going to have that protection of the soil to help it get buffered for that establishment early on in the season. So that's first and foremost. You know, I do have a couple of growers that have twin row planters and things like that. And instead of having a different piece of equipment on their farm, they're going out there and and putting in their covers with a twin row planter. And it works. There's still a lot of space out there. But again, uh, I still find that to be the superior system over some other ways that we can establish that because we have that seed down in the ground. So right. I, I think anytime that seed's established down in, down in, it's better than not. You know, you said, you know, the V6 establishment going out there and, and getting that crop in, planted yeah. early, interseeding, right? Yeah. You you talked about the herbicide side of things and, and the residual side of things. The other thing that we have to think about is, is that anytime we're talking about an irrigated cropping system for us, we're talking about a plant population that's over 30,000 on pretty much everything. Maybe we can find some sand situations that are below that, but it's usually above 33, 34,000 across most of that. 
if we go out there and we do some measurements in the growing season, if we've got 5% light infiltration through that canopy at tassel time, we're kind of considering that as a failure. You know, either we had poor germination, we've had hail, something has happened that's opened up that crop canopy and that's letting the, the weeds get established, that's letting the water hemp and the foxtail and those things get enough sunlight down at the soil surface to grow. That's the same situation that those cover crops are going to need for the way that we farm around here. We got to have more than 5% light infiltration to keep a plant alive for three months so that it can race out of the gate as soon as the crop turns brown or, or it's removed off the field. That's a good point. If the foxtail's not popping up, you probably don't have enough light to pop up a cover crop. You can get one up sometimes, especially something that's a little more shade tolerant, you know, maybe your clovers, that kind of thing. But to get any decent growth out of it, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about establishment. Let's talk a little bit about species. Um, I'll say that, you know, whenever I'm talking to a a grower about cover crop, especially if it's the first time that they're trying to cover crop, I'm always going to start with winter rye. To me, cereal rye, winter rye is the easiest cover crop to get established. It's the easiest cover crop to get good growth on. It's the least likely to winter kill on you. It's the most likely crop that you can put out there as a cover crop and just feel like you really had success with it. And typically it gives you a better success rate for termination than some of the other things that we can do out there as well. Had really it, good luck killing it with Roundup. It's kind of that flex ear or pink cob or whatever, you know, the, the go anywhere sort of conversation that we have out of it. You've got you to do a lot of things wrong to have something go awry when you're using... And the next thing I would talk to a grower about, okay, you, you say you don't want to, you, you want to take your next step. Okay, well, let's try maybe throwing in some turnips or some radishes or something else with that cereal rye, still making cereal rye kind of the backbone uh, of your of your program. Now, if you were unable to get anything in in the fall and now it's spring and you want to try something, well, then oats makes sense to me. And then after that, you know, as we start moving to legumes, I, I'll usually talk about hairy vetch a lot, maybe clover. Those are kind of the direction I'm, I'm normally going to start a guy down. How about you? You've got a lot more experience in it. Species much different than that? And if so, what are they? No, I mean, you've got a whole book here of stuff that you can select out of. And it, it's a little bit like bellying up to the bar at your favorite watering hole, right? You can make it as simple or as complicated as you want for what, what's coming across there. But everything's got it, its nuances to it. So, you know, when I go down into Kansas, and especially as I start to move into the winter wheat areas of Kansas... Um, Rye isn't always a great choice for the crop rotation down there. So we got to look at some different things. And, and that's one of the places where oats really comes in and, and makes a lot of sense. Now, the unfortunate part about oats, oats is a great one to put in in front of the rye and, and have something in the spring, but not necessarily getting all of the growth that you want after the winter wheat to, to have that. So oats has got a lot of flexibility. Um, I think one of the things that, that you have to, uh, you can't have too big expectations for what you're doing either. None of this right. stuff is a miracle cure. Right. The idea of these tillage radishes breaking up all the compaction and things like that. I know that's going down a little bit of a, a different slope here, but 
they they're a great cover crop, but when they hit their 300 psi compaction layer, they go up out of the ground. Right. They don't just magically right. shatter the ground and go through yeah. stuff that they can't grow through. So, I mean, if if that's the right scenario for what you've got out there, tillage radishes are a great choice. Um, I think a lot of it too comes back to you know what we talked about the other day with our seed corn and our silage and things like that. If I've got those kind of systems, I want to get as big of a leaf protecting that soil as quickly as I possibly can. So I'm going to want some rye in there for the fibrous roots and the advantages that those have. But I may choose a beet or a radish or or something with a big floppy leaf to get as quick of ground protection out there. So it, it's literally... Uh, I was doing uh, the Nebraska Farmer event at Husker Harvest Days in the Big Tent this year, and one of the people asked me, well, what's the best cover crop I can plant? I have no idea what the best cover crop you can plant is. I've got to ask you more questions than you're going to ask me to get to that point. I would still say for that grower who's brand new into it and is willing to just give it a try for the first time, and especially coming from corn, going into soybeans, hard to go wrong with cereal rye. Yep. Yep, hard to go wrong with cereal rye. Then always look at that opportunity to add to the crop rotation. If you're going from, if you're in continuous corn, forget about the rye and and try to get a legume in there. Try to get a brassica in there. Try to get something different in there than that another grass. Use that as an opportunity to break up the rotation. And I'm not completely against cereal rye in front of corn as long as you kill it early. I think you still get a little bit of a nitrogen penalty. Another negative of cereal rye is, especially if you let it go long, it takes up a lot of water. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes that's a positive. You know, if you've got a wet spring, it can pull water out and let you get back in the field quicker. But if you get a dry year, like, you know, 2012 would have been a horrible year to have winter rye out there. Uh, maturing and getting a lot of GDUs and really putting some height on it. And then you kill it, you know, a foot, foot and a half tall, and then you go plant into it and you can't get the, the furrow to close because the, the ground's so darn hard. You can't get the planter into the ground and you don't get water after it. And it can really be a mess. But on the flip side, 18 and 19 were good years yep. to have rye out there and, and open up the window to get into the field. So. Although I will say I was in one field in 19 where the guy let the rye get over three feet and he had a hard time getting the the soybean slot to close now fortunately it kept raining and uh those beans grew even on the ground and they still established a pretty good stand so then on the on the continuing down this path then what about the idea of the mixes Mm -hmm. putting together a full mix a full biological diverse series of crops together to try to accomplish something You know, what I've seen in the past is if you get a good year with a lot of um, good warm temperatures and moisture, that can be pretty successful. When you get a tough year and there's just not a lot of time, it seems like one species dominates and a lot of times you have a hard time even finding the other ones. How about you? So, again, I think it it comes down to it's not for the beginner. Yep. Right? To, To incorporate multiple species into a cover crop mix... You're now getting into the point in time where you're thinking about management decisions well into the next growing season as you make that selection. And one of the, I think probably one of the best instances that I can give on that is talking maybe about corn hybrid selection as the background for that. Because as we look at the differences that we have in some of our 
our root types with different corn hybrids out there, there's a lot of things that you can do to set up success with a cover crop mix that has some fibrous roots from rye, even though maybe rye into corn isn't always our favorite thing to do, but those fibrous roots that you get from rye can help set up a, a certain crop hybrid while we still have some more deep penetrating things from legumes or brassicas that open up some channeling and help us cycle some nutrients and some limes and things like that. So as we think about adding additional species beyond say just a cereal rye is what are we trying to do? I mean, I can think of a legume obviously is going to bring in some nitrogen. Um, Talk a little bit about biodiversity. What's the benefit of biodiversity to soil health? So I, the first thing I think of are maybe some of our nitrogen management areas that we have in, in the state. Sure. Um, where, where we're getting monitored very closely for the nitrates in our water and things like that. Going out there with a cover crop species that's a nitrogen scavenger at the end of the growing season and tying that stuff back up into plant growth, especially when we have low CECs where, where it's a little bit more prone to leaching, a nitrogen scavenger can have a ton of benefit there. You know, think about the same thing with with going into a legume, if, you know, going into soybeans the following year. I don't want a big rush of nitrogen hitting that legume crop before the 20th of July because I'm going to mess up my nodulation. I'm going to mess up some of my ability to fix nitrogen. But if I can do the right thing with a nitrogen scavenger or, or a nitrogen producer, you know, whatever that mix is, to turn it into green manure and have that begin to let nitrogen into that system in mid and late July, there's some advantages from a yield platform there. And, and I think you can just continue to go down the line and think about the differences in some of these some of these systems with what legumes or nitrogen scavengers or nitrogen producers give us in making that next cash crop successful. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take a little break there and we'll do another funny farm story. I'll go check my computer. So Keith, when I was uh, through my teenage years, middle school into high school, um, we used to go buy uh, bulls from a local dairy farmer. And then we'd feed those bulls out. And of course, we'd bring the vet in and have them castrated, feed them out of steers, Holstein bulls, and feed them out of steers. And uh, that's you know a nice way for us to make a little bit of money. You know, a lot of kids do a 4-H uh, project or they'll have uh, show calves. We didn't do any of that. It was, it was all about, you know, a, a profitable enterprise for us. I think I paid for my first car and a couple of motorcycles that way. Well, Anyway, one of those years, dad decided that uh, he wanted it on, on the action a little bit. So instead of having, you know, just one or two or three bulls uh, that my brother and I were feeding, I think we had about 15 of them. And there was kind of a combination of the ones that my brother owned and then the, the ones that my dad owned. And, and part of uh, the feed bill for the ones that my brother and I owned was we would feed dad. So we had this group of bulls and they kind of varied a little bit in size. I think the smaller ones might have been down around 400 pounds, but the larger ones had gotten a little bigger. And they were maybe up to about 1,000 pounds. We'd feed them out to about 1,300. Well, anyway, 
you know, you bring these bulls in as bottle calves and you raise them up and, and they're really friendly and they, you know, they're playful and we're kids and we think we're cowboys. So we'll do the cowboy wrestling thing and wrestle them down to the ground. Well, about time they get to be about 700 pounds, I can't take them down anymore. And they realize that they can pick me up and they can knock me down. So, you know, we'll go out and do our chores and, and these bulls will come up and just, you know, they'd knock us down and so occasionally we get to the point of, you know, carrying a yardstick or an axe handle or something with us. So when they'd come to knock us down, we could give them a little whack on the nose. Well, one night, my mom is coming back from some church group that she's a part of, and uh, somebody has left the gate open and the bulls have gotten out. And my mom's used to them being bottle calves and not necessarily used to us having to go do chores with a yardstick or an axe handle to whack the bull to keep him from knocking us over. And again, they're playful, they're young. And so my mom gets out of the car and here's this group of bulls kind of in our farmyard between our shop and my grandmother's house and our grain bins and the two or the one feedlot that we've still got these little bulls in off to the side. And mom gets out of the car and does the old put her arms up and go, yeah, yeah, you know. Well, they make a beeline right to her. <laughs> <laughs> now, fortunately, there's a big pole that the yard lights on, and she's able to kind of grab the head and horn of this bull and run around the, the lot light or the light pole with this bull chasing her kind of, shoving his head up and down, trying to trying to knock her over, frankly, while she's making laps around the, the yard pole. Now, my grandmother sees this because her house is right there, turns on the light, comes out, yells at my mom that if she keeps this up, it'll be a great way to lose weight. <laughs> well, the bulls hear my grandmother on, on the back porch and, and they start making a beeline to her. So she grabs her broom and she's got one bull at bay with the broom, one of the bigger ones at bay with the broom, while another one's still chasing my mom around the, the light pole. Now, in the meantime, my grandmother did have the, the sense to call up to the house and yell at my dad and I that we better get down there and rescue my mom. So we come down there and <laughs> once we stop laughing, I get out of the pickup and I start running between them toward the, the feedlot so dad can get them locked in. I'm making some noise. They see me. They take off after me. Again, realizing I'm not carrying an axe handle this time. Finally give my mama and grandma a break. I uh, sprint to the other end of the feedlot and, and literally clear the fence with a nice jump at about 15 years old, which I'm a lot lighter at 15 than I am today. But my mom still talks about that and is still pissed off about how long it took us to get done laughing before we could come out and rescue her from the bull chasing her around the, the lot pole. So you saved mom from the bulls, but who saved you from mom? <laughs> I think mom was tired enough after that episode that she was not going to give me too much of a beating. And by the next day, I guess she was thankful that we'd rescued her. But uh, that story has gone along for a long time that, uh, you know, when you cowboy up on those calves and get them used to you wrestling them down and then you're you know, carrying a, a stick or an axe handle with you to give do the chores. Uh, they're darn playful, and they realize when you don't have something with you to defend you. So my mom just trying to walk them back into the feedlot was not going to fly. <laughs> okay.
So Keith, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about species and I do want to put one little plug in there. If, if growers really want to get a better feel for what some of the species are that are available and where they might work and where they might not work as well, um, SARE, the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Group, puts together a booklet called Managing Cover Crops Profitably. It's free. You, you type that into Google, S-A-R-E, SARE, and Managing Cover Crops Profitably. It'll come up with their booklet. It's a PDF download that guys can just download, put on their iPad or whatever. Great information. Any other resources really jump out for you? I, I think probably the other big one that, that's really specific to our area would be the No-Till on the Plains group. Yeah. Um, they've got a lot of great stuff on their website. They put on a great conference every year that covers a lot of stuff that they're, they're a good place to start as well. And, and maybe just as much for the networking opportunities of figuring out who's doing what in your area. Because as I was down there a few weeks ago for the conference in, in Wichita, there were folks from all the corners of the United States there. So, you know, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, decisions on, on putting in a cover crop, some, some ways to get it in the ground, some species to think about. Let's talk about soil health testing. So we've decided that we want to make our soil healthier. What are some assessments a grower can use to try to figure out if they're gaining ground or where they're at to start with? You know, maybe put together a, a bit of a benchmark of where they are now. Um, a starting point and then, you know, some measurements that they could do to try to figure out if they're making things better or not. Well, I, I think you hit on it. The testing is kind of an essential part of this whole thing as well, because whether it's changing over to no-till or it's adding cover crops into the mix, there are certainly times when the success isn't immediate, especially to the pocketbook that yet you see on it. You've got to work your way through two or three years before the soil goes through that initial change and has the opportunity to do its functions differently and you start to see the economic benefits of what you do out there. So having that benchmark is really important for what we start out there. And I think one of the first benchmarks that, that we don't necessarily think about a whole lot in the commercial ag world is just looking at some stratified soil samples out there. Meaning that we look at some things and I... Obviously, we still talk about the same nutrients that, that you spend a lot of time talking about, but especially looking at organic matter uh, from a stratified standpoint, that zero to two and then two to six or two to eight measurement out there, that's a really good place to start because the amount of time it takes to have a big organic matter change at eight inches is going to be remarkably different than what it takes to have it at two inches. So starting off with some baseline samples in the stratified way, especially for organic matter, is a great place to start. So that is not where you expected me to start with on this conversation about the testing, was it? No, it's not, but it, it doesn't surprise me either. You know, Keith, as we talk to guys about soil health, the first thing that comes up is organic matter, right? So my organic matter is this, my organic matter is that, and that's all great. But... I can see a grower being um, disappointed or frustrated that he, you know, puts in a cover crop or he starts, stops doing tillage, moves to no-till, 
and doesn't see any impact on his organic matter. And I think that's a great point you've got there. When you're when you're diluting that organic matter at the soil surface with eight inches of soil sample, you're not going to make an impact three inches deep or five inches deep or eight inches deep right away. So yeah, understanding where you're at at two inches so you can maybe feel a little bit better that you've made some headway, that makes a lot of sense to me. I honestly would, would also tell a grower, you know, you need to already have some soil samples, right? I mean, just our standard nutrient soil samples. Of course, we're not going to go into all that this episode, but pH especially, you know, there's some things that you need to do from a soil health standpoint, just on our traditional soil testing, you kind of should have a good start on that before you jump completely into something new. So that is a good start. You know, like you said, your stratified uh, soil samples, you know, and then we move into other things. So what other things would you go into? So as you go from lab to lab, you're going to hear some different terminology and things like this, but I think you can probably look at the the Cornell soil health analysis uh, as, as kind of the, the, yeah, the cash is kind of the, uh, the pillar of this. And within that, I, I tend to look at, at what I refer to as the six pillars of soil health that, that come out of the testing that they do. So you've got soil respiration, you've got aggregate stability, you've got asoil proteins, water infiltration, you've got your organic matter, and then the other one. <laughs> well, the, you know, the, uh, the Cornell Comprehensive Assessment of Soil Health is 120 pages uh, long. I've actually asked Bree to go ahead and read that for us and kind of give us a summary, maybe a cliff notes so we could get out to all of our growers. So if they'll contact Bree, she will have that for them. Check the website for further information. (laughs) (laughs) So so what I'll take out of that is what we see across the research that we've been doing at, at the Soil Health Partnership is the first and foremost area that begins to show results that are measurable and and jumping into the whole world of academia statistically significant is that aggregate stability piece of it. That's going to be the precursor of seeing other things change in normal soil samples, seeing visible changes out in the field. It's when we start to build more stable aggregates that we have better infiltration, we have better soil respiration, all of those things become a reality that enable the wider aspect of this soil health conversation to come into fruition. One of our challenges, of course, is that we just don't have standardized tests that are widely accepted as, you know, this is the test that we do. So you talk about aggregate stability. Well, aggregate stability is if I soak a soil down, do the aggregates stay intact or do they start to break down? Of course, our aggregates are how our soil particles are pulled together. A lot of times it's that you know, the, the old organic matter, it's the glue that our soil microbes put out as they, uh, as they eat and do what they do with soil organic matter. So yes, I, I very much agree that aggregate stability is a great measurement to point toward better soil health. One of the challenges is we just don't have an industry standard or a just complete ag standard for what aggregate stability really is. So you almost need to Pick a laboratory that offers that test. Stick with that laboratory so you can see if you've got improvements in aggregate stability. Um, you know, we move into other things. We move into the soil biology and the biological respiration. I, 
I like that test, but I see a lot of variations. I go through the growing season with soil temperatures and, and time of season, and, and it makes it challenging. So and, and and the amount of water that's in our soil profile when it happens. You know, the last two springs, having a, a very near-saturated soil profile, have shown a, a downturn in soil respiration in soils that have other positive responses going on to the to the soil health activities that we're having out there. So, you know, I think there's also, as you move away from the lab side of this, the things that, that you can do in field that aren't necessarily, um, aren't necessarily an exact score, but give you an indication of what's going on out there. And, and the first is just starting with that spade out there and going out and measuring the, the, the aggregates that you have in your soil, how how good a formation is that soil having? What's the color look like on it? What's the smell like on it? Just some simple things like that as you move around the farm. And then moving on beyond that, getting yourself a simple simple ring and some, some saran wrap and starting to do some water infiltration, infiltration tests on various spots in your field and understanding if you're having an impact on water infiltration with some of the things you're doing. That's a great opportunity for our growers to make use of, you know, the good YouTube videos we've got out there. Punch in uh, measuring water infiltration into YouTube. Um, you can get those rings a lot of time from your local NRCS. You can get them from Gemplers. Um, there's opportunity to buy those water infiltration rings. And basically the idea is it creates what looks like about a two inch section of coffee can that you lightly wrap into the soil. Uh, you mentioned the saran wrap. The saran wraps to keep from the you know dumping water in, say, out of a, a jug and that uh, messing with the larger pores and, and closing them off. So instead, the saran wrap and pulling it off to the side allows the water to drop gently into that ring. And you measure how long does it take for an inch to go in? How does it, long does it take for a second inch to go in? And, and a bottle of water that you get at the convenience store is very close to that one inch of water. Yep. So it doesn't require a lot of measurements. It doesn't require a lot of, of tools to go go do that. And it's pretty easy to go back to very close to the same area year after year and see if that is changing. Right. One challenge is what was the soil moisture level before you started? That's so, why you really don't ever take that reading until you do the second inch of water yep, going in. Yep. And it wouldn't hurt at all to just take it a few times through the growing season yep. and do it a few times each growing season. And, you know, any one test on its own to me is almost without value. It's trend lines of yep. tests is what you're looking for. But what I'll say about all of the testing and all of the different things, because there's there's different concepts out there that like the Haney tests and things like that, that, that some people really put a lot of faith in, others don't. There's the nitrogen testing that, that may have a huge impact on your operation and, and not so much on other operations and, and certain years and things like that. But what's really important out of all of this isn't necessarily just what those tests say for results from a numeric value or a score or a letter or a color or whatever it comes out on that. A lot of the growers that I work with is we went out there this year with our our complete analysis for the the country, the region, and their farm and, and what how things were scored on those operations. As we sat down with with my farmers to start going through those books, several of them told me, well, you know, whatever's in this is kind of secondary because I know this last year 
I had a firmer soil when I planted and I wasn't leaving tracks, even though the neighbor left mud for three quarters of a mile after they left the field and we planted on the same day. I know changes are occurring, even if these scores aren't there yet. I can see it. I can feel it. I can smell it. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that, too. You know, as you go across a field after years of no-till, the mellowness sometimes is really nice. And and I I think growers should own a soil probe. They may not take a soil sample or they just take a few occasionally. You know, let, let whoever, their consultant, the cooperative, whoever, do your grid sampling with all the software that's needed for that and all the interpolation software and the recommendations and all that. But still use a soil probe just to stick it in the ground and see how easy it goes in, pull it out. Did I hit an earthworm this time? You know, as you go along and soil gets healthier, you hit earthworms more and more often. You can still see the earthworm channel a lot of times in that probe core that you pull out. You can see color, look at depth of the topsoil you've got right there. There's a lot of things you can do with a soil probe. Spade's nice, but it takes a lot more work to dig a hole with a spade. I can shove a probe in and pull it back out and look at it and move on pretty quick. Pentrometer is another one. Using yep. a pentrometer to see what kind of resistance you've got in that soil. Um, that one's a, a good indicator to me of, of ability of water to move into that soil, ability of roots to move through that soil. I've never met a farmer that didn't know good soil when they yeah. saw it, smelled it, felt it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It does have an earthy smell to it. Yep. And sometimes a lot of time you can kind of correlate that a little bit to biological activity. Let me ask you one other thing. Okay, yield. How is this going to impact my yield, Keith? So, so as we look across the entirety of the research that we've begun to put together across several hundred fields and, and five and six years now of what we've got going on out there, the thing we know is, is that the growers that are participating in these studies with the treatments that we're doing, whether it's no-till versus conventional till or the cover crops or whatever, they're following the same trend line yield that other growers are. We can certainly pick out regions that have... Uh, ha that do experience that downturn in the first two or three years, we can certainly pick out regions that have no downturn at all and they immediately have the same or improved yields as we put this onto it. So the ultimate piece of this is, is that in the long run, it's not going to add a tremendous amount of cost to the profitability. It's certainly not going to take away from the long-term yield on a lot of this stuff. But just like so many other things in it, it, it rewards the person that's got perseverance. Mm -hmm. If you've got the, the fortitude to, to stay with something as you try something new for three to five years versus one to two years, you're going to see more success and get your returns out of it over the long term. So, Keith, if a grower is interested in working with uh, the Soil Health Partnership or getting questions answered or looking for a little direction, how do they get a hold of you folks? The easiest way is to start on, on our website, the Soil Health Partnership, and, and Google that, and that will be the first place to look. We're the same places that everybody is, the Facebooks, the Twitters, and all of those things out there. It's really easy to find us. We'll be, you know, we've got the president commodity classic and things like that with with big presence we attend a lot of the local uh the local events that happen whether it's up in the dakotas with some of their no-till groups no-till on the plains things like that our field managers are at all of those things where you would expect them to find so to find somebody isn't real hard so good 
All right, Keith. Well, thanks for uh, coming back and spending a little time with us on Soil Talk. And uh, with Keith Byerly with the Soil Health Partnership, I'm Tim Mundorf with Central Valley Ag. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our agronomy focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.